This evening, I'm going to uh, do the transition point between my sessions for last year, which were about the really remarkable successes we've had in combating infections, uh, and this year when I'm going to be talking about cancers, the variety of cancers uh, that are major killers uh, in the world today. Uh, and I thought as the first subject, therefore, we should start off with the cancers which are driven by infections uh, and the immune system uh, that fights them. Now, uh, the first person, as far as we know, who, who drew a strong link between cancer and infection was, in fact, someone who you may well have seen a picture of uh, if you're an art lover. Um, uh, Dr. Nicholas Tulp, a uh, famous anatomist, uh, popularised the idea that cancer was contagious. And everyone laughed at him for about 300 years afterwards. But he was, in fact, uh, in large part, right. Many, many cancers have at least some, and some cancers have a very major infectious driver. So the first half of this lecture is going to be talking about the cancers that are driven by infections and what we can do to prevent them. But then alongside that is the immune system. The immune system everyone knows fights infection. What we've increasingly realised is the immune system also fights cancer. And if we can harness it, we can go on to actually treat cancer using either our own immune system or components of the immune system. So those are the two halves of this talk. Now, these are the major uh, cancers with a strong infectious driver. And I'm just going to go through them very quickly now, and then I'm going to go through them in more detail uh, to see where we've got with them. The first one, uh, which I suspect almost everyone in the audience will know about, uh, is cervical cancer in women, uh, and that is uh, almost exclusively caused by the human papillomavirus, HPV. Uh, liver cancer, uh, a proportion of that in the UK, but globally the majority of this is caused by the hepatitis viruses, hepatitis B and hepatitis C. Uh, there are some lymphomas and leukemias that are caused by, by uh, infections, uh, and stomach and duodenal cancers uh, in the gut. Some of these are caused... Uh, by the bacteria H. pylori, and then we have some rather rarer cancers caused by particular parasites. This isn't an exhaustive list, uh, but these are some of the major ones. And then, very importantly, HIV virus, by destroying the immune system, can go on to let cancers uh, run riot in the body, and you get cancers which you otherwise wouldn't. So these are the, uh, the very major infectious ones, and they can occur in virtually any part of the body. If you look globally, uh, a substantial proportion of cancer is in fact caused by infections. So the, the total number globally is estimated, uh, and it's a pretty rough estimate, to be around 15% of cancers. So that's about 2.2 million a year. Now that varies depending on where you are in the world. In general, in more uh, developed countries, it's a lower proportion. So in Europe, it's about uh, 7%. UK and USA, it's even lower than that, about 4%. But in many parts of the world, in Africa, for example, it may be a third of cancers will be caused by infections. So this is a substantial global burden. And just putting some of the numbers uh, on this globally, and I will obviously be concentrating particularly on the UK, but I think it's important to understand the global situation, uh, about three-quarters of a million gastric cancers, uh, roughly half a million liver cancers, and roughly half a million cervical cancers globally are caused by infection. So these are big numbers. And the good news about these is these are preventable. Now, let's start off uh, with cervical cancer, because uh, in UK terms, uh, this is uh, really the most important of them, although uh, in global terms, uh, uh, others are also of considerable importance. As I say, globally, rough, roughly half a million uh, women are, are, are infected. Uh, in the UK, uh, at this point in time, and this will change for reasons we'll go on to, uh, we get around 3,000 cases a year. So this is non-trivial around one in 140 UK females at this point in time will be uh, diagnosed with cervical cancer in their lifetime. So not huge numbers, but very significant numbers. And we get lots of deaths. Importantly, every cancer death is a tragedy, but these cancer deaths tend to occur very early in people's lives. These tend to be uh, young women, very often recently after they've had children. 
because if you look at the age of diagnosis, this is a, uh, an infographic from Cancer Research UK, and a lot of the uh, figures I'm, I've got today are uh, plagiarised from Cancer Research UK because they do excellent uh, graphics. Um, what you see is this is age 20, uh, and you get a huge peak, uh, which then uh, begins to die away around 50. So these are young women who are getting this cancer. Uh, two bits of good news. Uh, the first one is for those who have a diagnosis, the survival rate has steadily improved. It's improved by about 74% since the 1970s. So even once you've got a cancer, the outcome is now getting steadily better. But I think the, uh, the better news is the fact that this is basically almost 100% preventable as a cancer. And in my view, we are now well on the route uh, to myeloma to do this. And that is because over 99%, some people would say 100%, of all cervical cancer is caused uh, by the uh, virus group, the human papillomavirus, otherwise known as wart viruses. Now, there are roughly 40 genital wart viruses. Um, I realise this isn't a particularly savoury topic before, uh, before supper, but it is actually a very important one. Uh, some of them cause warts. They don't cause any serious disease. Some of them, essentially, you don't notice at all. But a small number of them cause cancers, and two of them in particular dominate the causes of cancer in this country and elsewhere. They're extremely common. So uh, they're usually acquired very soon after sexual debut, um, so usually in people's late teens and early 20s. So it's actually it's a, it's acquired uh, really quite, quite commonly, and this is everywhere in the world. Most of them will be cleared by the immune system. So people will get the, the wart virus, it'll infect them, the immune system jumps on it, it goes away, uh, and they will probably then remain uh, immune for the rest of their lives. But uh, in a small proportion, but an important proportion, the cancer-causing the, the cancer virus persists. And it goes on to uh, cause first a pre-cancer, usually in people's late 20s to 30s, and that then in some cases that clears but in other people, it then will progress on to cause full cancer, uh, often hitting in people's 30s. Um, there are around 12 of these viruses that cause the cancer, but as I say, only really two of them are, are the major drivers in the UK. Smoking and HIV virus can increase the risk, but they can't cause the cancer. So they'll only cause the cancer if the, vir if the HPV virus is there. Get rid of the HPV virus uh, and those risk factors become unimportant. Now, the first really major stride uh, with this was screening. And uh, screening, which started in the UK in 1988, various other countries started at slightly different times, has led to a substantial reduction in cervical cancer. And you can see here, with this arrow, cancer rates going along steadily between 1971 and 1989, and then a very significant drop. And that's because the screening allows cells that would turn into cancer to be picked up early and then removed from the body. We'll go on to the, uh, how that's done. Uh, and this is thought to save up to 5,000 lives a year in the UK, maybe slightly less than that, but the numbers are roughly in that order of magnitude. And there's going to be a change in the way we diagnose this, which is going to be an improvement this year, which is we're going to move from looking at the cells causing cancer as the primary diagnosis to actually trying to detect the virus. Because if the virus is there, the risk of cancer is there. If the virus is not there, the risk of cancer is not there. So this is an important shift happening in this calendar year. And the modelling would suggest that will reduce the incidence of cancer by a further 20%. Now, what are the upsides and downsides of screening? Because I think people often talk about screening as if it's a panacea, and it isn't. This is true for all screening. But it, clearly, the risk-benefit is in favour of it for cervical cancer. Essentially, the basis of screening is that the earlier you detect a cancer of any sort, the more easy it is to treat. And if you detect it really early, the treatment is actually pretty trivial. If you detect it late, the treatment can be severe, or in some cases, the cancer can be spread to the point where treatment uh, is largely palliative. And there's a trade-off. By doing screening, you will pick up some uh, young uh, women, girls, young women, uh, middle-aged women, um, who have got cancer cells, cancer precancerous cells, that would not go on to get cancer. So there is a bit of overdiagnosis, but 
the treatment for this precancer is, in medical terms, relatively minor. It's, a, it's usually a matter of a very small uh, operation, uh, which can be done as a walk-in, walk-out, uh, causes a bit of heavy bleeding, but actually, uh, in terms of the day-to-day, -day, it really interferes with li people's lives a very small amount. So it is better to pick this up and have a slight over-treatment with this very, very minor treatment than wait until people have progressed and you're certain it's cancer, at which point you're talking about much more significant operations, or if you've waited too long, you're actually talking about really major operations and potentially a life-threatening situation. So this is the trade-off always uh, with screening. But we are very confident in the case of cervical, cervical cancer that screening is a benefit. And that makes it slightly uh, concerning to people like me and I hope to any of you that the, can the cervical uh, screening rates in the UK have been gradually drifting down. Not at a phenomenal rate, but there is a gradual drift down of cervical uh, cancer screening over time. So on the left is 2011, on the right is 2018. Uh, top uh, layer is people in their 50s and 60s, uh, and uh, the group that I'm particularly concerned about are people aged uh, 25 to 49 here, where the rates uh, overall have dropped to all, uh, uh, roughly 70%. That's a concern. And it's a particular concern for those of us living in London because the rates are particularly poor uh, here uh, in, in this city. So that's a very major advance uh, in terms of cervical cancer, but the absolutely stunning advance is going to be vaccination. We've now had, since 2008, a vaccine against HPV 16 and 18, the major drivers of cancer. And that has meant that the prevalence of these diseases, the, the proportion of people who have them, has decreased from around 14% to around 1.6% in people who come in for chlamydia screening. They're likely to be a slightly higher than average risk, but a really substantial reduction. Uh, and it looks as if the vaccine efficacy for this vaccine is at least 82%, so really quite substantial. And what these graphs show is that on the left, here are the, uh, over time, from the 2010 on the left, right to 2016 here, a substantial drop away in the two cancers it's vaccinating against. Importantly, a reduction also in some of the other cancer-forming, much rarer HPV things, but no change to the HPV rates that are not important. So it's not that people have changed their behaviour, it's simply that the vaccine is doing its job. Now, what impact is that going to have on cancer in the UK? Well, we're confident it will go down, and we're confident it will go down substantially. How quickly it will go down and how big that change will be, this is a modelling exercise, will depend on how long the immunity from the vaccine lasts. The minimum time we think it lasts is 10, uh, 10 years, and if that's the case, we would probably see a reduction in just, around, just, just over... Uh, just under uh, 40%. But if, as I think is highly likely, this provides lifelong protection, we would expect over time to see a reduction of around 70%. And this, the thing about this, which is uh, doubly beneficial, is that uh, if you actually look at this meta-analysis in very, very large uh, studies, what you find is that the rates of these uh, viruses are going down in the people who've been vaccinated but they are also going down in the people who've not been vaccinated because there's a herd effect. And this is going to speed up the process uh, by uh, which this, is, uh, this happens. So there's going to be a very significant improvement over time, not just in the vaccinated, but also in the unvaccinated. Nevertheless, being vaccinated is a lot better. And we're now introducing vaccination in boys. That will protect boys, which is very good for a variety of reasons I come on to, for their health, but that will also protect girls. So there's a, a, a gradual improvement. Uh, and if we look over the next uh, little while, uh, we're going to see a situation where um, we have better vaccines, which actually cover all or most of the dangerous herpes viruses, sorry, HPV viruses. Uh, and we're also going to see a herd effect passing through the population. And this is going to lead to this uh, cancer almost completely dis disappearing over time. It won't have completely gone in our lifetimes, but it will, have, in my view, have for practical purposes gone in the lifetimes of children uh, or grandchildren of people in the audience. And it's not just cervical cancer in women, although it does, that is the major effect. There are also 
uh, effects uh, from H this HPV virus um, on throat uh, and uh, mouth cancer on, uh, and on the cancers which could loosely be termed below the belt. Uh, and for both men and women, these are going to go down as a result of this. So this is going to have a big effect on a very, very wide range of cancers and very unpleasant cancers. An anal cancer, for example, for anyone who's managed it, is extremely unpleasant uh, to manage and substantially, obviously, more unpleasant for the person with it. Very, very major problem. So, fantastic news uh, on uh, cervical cancer and HPV. Then on liver cancer. And liver cancer, uh, the major driver globally, although not in the UK, uh, is two viruses, hepatitis B and hepatitis C, slightly different viruses, as I'll come on to. In the UK, roughly 10% of, um, of our liver cancer uh, here is caused by these viruses. The majority of the remainder is a combination of alcohol and obesity. Uh, we might come on to that uh, later in, in the year. And it's mainly caused by cirrhosis. The hepatitis causes cirrhosis, and then cancer follows on from that. Now, again, very good news uh, with both of these. So you've got this situation where 90% of liver cancer in developing countries and 40% in developed, about 10% in the UK, are caused by these. Let's take the two uh, in separation. Hepatitis B is a virus that is incredibly common. And what happens is lots of women in many countries are infected at the time they have their children. <coughs> they then pass it vertically to their children. Their children then do what children do. They fight, they play, they do all the kind of things, uh, play doctors and nurses, uh, and that way they transmit the, the virus horizontally in childhood. So they get infected in childhood. And then a few people who weren't infected in childhood will then be infected in a third wave, so mother to child, child to child, and then as young adults... Uh, where it gets transmitted uh, horizontally uh, in sexual activity or occasionally intravenous drug use. So this is a very easy-to-transmit virus, much more easy to transmit than HIV is, for example. Very common in quite large uh, parts of the world. And we do have drugs to suppress this virus, but we don't have any to cure it. However, we do have a highly effective vaccine, which we've now had for some time, and this vaccine has now been introduced globally around the world, including in the UK, as a routine vaccination. So this hepatitis is uh, going to go down, and what we know from studies done particularly in China, uh, but also elsewhere, uh, Taiwan here, is that when you start vaccinating, the virus goes away, and when the virus goes away, the cancer goes away. We've got several studies showing this. I've just shown data from one of these. So this, vir this virus is disappearing, and as this virus disappears, this cancer, hepatoma, is going to go away. And there's now a concerted effort globally to actually get rid of the hepatitis B virus, not eradicate it completely, that is probably a stretch too far, but eradicate it as a major public health problem. And it's currently given in combination as a vaccine with diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, Hib, all viruses I talked about, uh, well, infections rather, I talked about some of the bacteria, bacterial infections I talked about uh, in the last um, year, uh, and uh, plus minus polio. And uh, in many places, there's over 80% coverage. And I'm very proud of the fact, actually, that the UK is one of the major supporters of doing this globally. So we, through something called the Gavi Alliance, uh, invest very heavily in getting rid of this virus. And once it's gone, in my view, it will stay gone uh, for good. So this is a very, very encouraging direction of travel. So we're going to see a significant reduction in liver cancer globally because of hepatitis B. And the same, for different reasons, is true of the other virus, hepatitis C. Now, this is different from hepatitis B in the way it's transmitted. It's still a blood-borne uh, virus. Most of it, however, is acquired not in children or in childbirth, but most of it's acquired among adults. And I regret to say that my own great profession spent a lot of time spreading it around the world because it's often done uh, when uh, there's unsafe medical practices, when people share needles and so on. Intravenous drug use is the other major use. Way. So uh, there are about 1.5 million new cases a year. But here's the very good news. Although we do not have a vaccine, we have, over the last 10 years, developed several highly effective, short-course, safe drugs, uh, which are up to 90% cure rates. 
And whilst I think a vaccine is unlikely to occur very soon, if you can catch people early in their infection and then treat them, then they will not progress to cirrhosis and they will not progress to hepatoma. So these two big drivers of, hepatite, of, uh, of hepatoma, of liver cancer, uh, are on their way out. So those are all viruses. Let's move on now to a bacteria. Many of you will have heard of the bacteria H. pylori. You may have heard about it if you have gastritis or a duodenal or gastric ulcer. And this used to be a really serious problem. And now your GP or your hospital doctor, when they diagnose it, simply give you a course of four weeks of antibiotics and this goes away. And usually the ulcer goes away. What I think a lot of people realise uh, less truly is that uh, this is also a major driver of cancer. And so if people have got H. pylori, most people with H. pylori do not get cancer, but if you do have H. pylori, it increases your risk of the more common gastric cancer, the non-cardia type, uh, between uh, six and eight times. So this is a very significant risk. Also an increased risk of a particular kind of lymphoma, albeit a rare one. And here, we've actually started to get rid of stomach cancer almost by accident. Because the rates of H. pylori infection are going down, and because when H. pylori infection occurs, it can be treated, we've now got a situation where little by little, H. pylori rates are going down and cancer rates are going down in both men and women. The rates in men are higher because one of the other risk factors for cancer is smoking, but they are converging on one another. We think around uh, a third of UK stomach cancer is currently H. pylori related. So as that gradually gets treated... Uh, and prevented, uh, we're going to have a situation where um, we, would, we will continue, in our view, to continue to see uh, reductions in stomach cancer. And we would project that somewhere between 15 and 20% reductions are likely just over the next 15 years just because of continuing direction of travel with H. pylori treatment and also uh, smoking uh, cessation. This is good news because stomach cancer is a very difficult one uh, sometimes to treat. Uh, whilst maintaining a good quality of your life. So in the UK, a significant amount of stomach cancer. In uh, Asia, a very major cause of cancer. And again, in Asia, what we're seeing is a very significant reduction in stomach cancer as we get on top of H. pylori. There's another infection, Epstein-Barr virus, which come on to, uh, which also contributes. If we went back to the 1930s, this cancer was probably the most common cancer any, anywhere. But whilst this is not going to go away, this is steadily, clearly in retreat, largely, in my view, because of these reductions in H. pylori and H. pylori treatment. So cervical cancer, liver cancer, stomach cancer. And then there are some rather rarer ones, uh, or at least more, um, more geographically uh, circumscribed ones. And I'm just going to give two. There are quite a lot of others, but I'm going to give two uh, broad areas. The first of which uh, is a parasite called Schistosomiasis, more commonly known as Bilharzia. Uh, anyone who's uh, swum in lakes and rivers in uh, Africa, to a lesser extent Asia and Latin America, uh, is uh, generally aware of this. Uh, and this is caused by a human snail cycle where the parasite develops in the snail, gets into the water. If you swim in the water, it penetrates your skin. Two different forms. One goes to your liver, but the other one, which is the one I'm going to talk about here, goes down to your bladder. It often does no harm at all, but if you have a heavy infection, your bladder gets very inflamed. This is a bladder of someone with schistomasis. You shouldn't be able to see it on an X-ray. It's, become, it's because it's become very calcified due to the inflammation. And this leads to a significantly increased risk of bladder cancer. And this, again, is a parasite you can treat and uh, also you can control by a combination of sanitation and mass drug administration. So here, a different route to management. It's not a vaccine, uh, but this is one where we're talking about uh, mass drug administration and public health measures. And that's an African uh, parasite, and here is a one that is primarily found in East and Southern, particularly Eastern Asia. Uh, this is a, another kind of liver fluke, rather pretty once it's stained. Uh, its natural cycle uh, is between um, a snail um, and a carnivore, including us, but it goes via fish and shrimps stroke prawns. And so you, uh, you get your fish, you catch it, you feel very pleased with yourself, you... Uh, don't cook it. 
you eat the fish, and that way you actually catch the parasite. And this can cause a uh, kind of cancer in the bile duct that takes bile from the liver down to the gut, something called cholangiocarcinoma. This is an entirely preventable um, parasitic infection uh, if you do one of two things. You can either freeze your fish or you can cook it. Think about that when you next go, next go for your sushi meal. Now, in the UK, this is not a risk uh, because uh, the, the fish will have been frozen or had other things that will make this, this not occur, but globally, this is a major issue. So I would encourage people who wish to have exotic cuisine to ask whether it's been frozen first. And in this case, the, the, un the correct answer is yes. There are other um, infections that are important, um, and I'm just going to now going to talk about two for which we currently do not have preventative measures, but in one case at least I think it's a possibility. The first um, is a, a very, very common virus called Epstein-Barr virus. Many of you would have heard of it, also known sometimes as glandular fever. And the thing about Epstein-Barr virus is 90% of you, 90% of us, will have been infected by this at some stage, usually in childhood, usually without noticing it. And once it's in you, it stays in you. And for a great majority of people, it does no harm at all. But we know that it appears to be associated with about 40% of a common lymphoma, something called Hodgkin lymphoma, Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, uh, because we know that the EBV nucleic acid, the DNA uh, extracts, uh, and the protein in the lymphoma cell come from this virus. So it appears to be strongly associated. Some other lymphomas, and it's also in Africa, associated with this very unpleasant uh, lymphoma called Burkitt's lymphoma, which is a lymphoma of children, which appears to be something which you get from combining uh, uh, the virus, Epstein-Barr virus, and the parasite malaria. If you have both of those, your risk of this infection goes up. Also seems to be associated with some throat and stomach cancers. So this is quite an important virus for cancers. My own view is that getting a, a vaccine for this that we can actually deploy is an entirely biologically realistic uh, op option. And if we could do this, we could have a very significant impact on some really quite major lymphomas uh, around the world, including in the UK. So this seems to me an area we should be looking at very seriously as a way of trying to reduce really quite significant cancers. And then a rather rarer one, but I'm going to, I mean, it's a bridge into um, HIV. Uh, this, uh, a virus called HTLV, um, uh, mainly HTLV-1. It's a retrovirus, very similar in some ways to HIV virus. It's got a lot of biological similarities to HIV. Very common, particularly in the Caribbean and Japan, but also occurs in the UK and USA to some degree. And it's associated with a very rare and aggressive uh, kind of lymphoma leukemia, something called adult T-cell uh, lymphoma. Now, I've mentioned that because there is an important similar virus which is very, very big driver of cancer globally, and that is HIV. HIV AIDS, because it reduces the immune system, not as probably primarily as a direct effect, but because it, re it reduces the immune surveillance and uh, management of the body, uh, increases significantly the risk of lots of cancers. Most of them are cancers I've actually talked about before. So, it, for example, it increases your risk of Hodgkin and non-Hodgkin lymphoma. It increases your risk of cervical and eight other HPV vaccines. It increases your risk of liver cancer, probably, because it allows the infection immune system combination essentially to escape. But it also increases the risk of some non-infectious cancers. And that's because the immune system, as we'll come on to, is a very major part of your defence, our defence, against cancer. And this is, a this is a list of some of the cancers which are much more common in people who've got HIV than people who do not have HIV. And these are mainly people uh, with advanced disease. And the blue bars are people who are uninfected. The red bars are people who are infected. And as you can see, in some of them, like, uh, like these, there's relatively small difference. Uh, <coughs> and in some of them, uh, there is really uh, very substantial differences. In particular, I'd highlight non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and Kaposi's sarcoma. Now, Kaposi's sarcoma is a very rare cancer in people who don't have HIV. And it is caused by another uh, kind of virus called HHV8. It does occur in particular geographical regions, but it is rare. But it's a very aggressive cancer, and you can see it here. It goes in the skin. Uh, here are two skin things, the mouth, 
the lungs and the guts. And it's basically, it causes this, uh, um, this very, very aggressive cancer, which can lead to bleeding and a variety of other major problems. When HIV uh, first started and people started developing AIDS, this became an incredibly common cancer in AIDS sufferers. And those of us who had to deal with HIV AIDS at its peak used to see literally hundreds of cases of this, uh, this cancer uh, coming through the door. Up to 35% of HIV positive people would have this cancer. If you treat with antiretrovirals, with the drugs that re re make the immune system restored, this cancer usually goes away. So putting the immune system back on track gets the cancer back under control. And if someone who's got HIV is treated early, their immune system is maintained and the cancer doesn't emerge. So this is a very clear link, the first in this talk, of the really clear link between the immune system and cancer. If you remove the immune system, cancer increases. Now, HIV obviously is a major disruption of the immune system, but so is the medical profession. Doctors wipe out or reduce the immune system for a whole variety of reasons. Some of those are temporary. So some cancer chemotherapies, and we'll talk about uh, in particular, we'll talk about this when we talk about um, uh, some of the hematological malignancies uh, next year. Some of it is relatively limited for inflammatory diseases where you're just trying to reduce inflammation. So it's a relatively modest reduction. Um, but the really big one is organ transplantation. If someone has to have a liver transplant, a, a heart transplant, a, a kidney transplant in particular... To avoid rejection of that organ, the immune system has to be damped right down. If you don't damp it right down, then the organ will be rejected. And so this is a group of people who are, have a much lower immune system than uh, other people. And what you find is that following transplant, the risk of cancer significantly goes up. Some cancers make almost no difference, but many cancers, and these are ones in terms of the ratios... Non-melanoma skin cancer, for example, goes up over 20 times in terms of the ratio. So these are cancers which are increasing because we have removed the immune system to some degree. So this is good indirect evidence of the fact that the immune system is very critical in keeping cancer under control. Because if you remove the immune system, cancer starts significantly to increase. And I think this is the area where the big advances are now happening in cancer. There are many, many areas of advance we'll talk about over the next year. But probably the fastest area is our understanding of the interaction between the immune system and cancer cells. All the time, every day, every hour, every minute of your life, your immune system is scanning your, your cells, both for infection but also for abnormal cells which could turn into cancer cells. And when it finds them, it kills them. So it kills them early. Most of you will probably have had cells that could have turned into cancer that have emerged, and your immune system have found them and killed them, and you're none the worse for it. It's just done its job. It's got rid of the whole area. But therefore, that's important for three reasons. If it's weakened, as we've, come, we've just talked about, cancer risk goes up. The second reason it's important, which I'm not going to talk about today, but I will talk about in some subsequent talks, is if you give cancer treatment, you often damage the immune system, and that makes your risk of infection, the other thing the immune system does, also goes up. But what I want to talk about for the second half of this talk, slightly shorter second half, is that we're increasingly using the immune system as a tool to fight cancer by a whole variety of different routes, and this is the fastest area of development. And I'm going to go steadily up through the uh, levels of, in a sense, sophistication, although all of them are sophisticated. Now, I don't want to use the word breakthrough. I hate uh, the term breakthrough, actually. It's a very easy headline. And the reason I hate it is because everything in cancer, everything in medicine, is incremental changes stacked on top of one another. Nevertheless, it is fair to say... Uh, and actually newspapers, once you get past the headline, have reported this really very fairly, that this is area is moving incredibly fast in cancer. Now, for those of you who are professional immunologists, or indeed people who are at school and just studied the immune system, you're going to wince when I give this summary of the immune system. Uh, bear with me. I'm just doing it because I want to concentrate on a few bits of it. 
but I am aware it is very, very complicated. Uh, this is all that we need to know for tonight. There are basically three bits of it that I want to highlight in the immune system, this incredibly complicated multi-layered defence system that all of us have inside us. The first is what's called the innate immune system and particularly a kind of cell called a natural killer cell. Now, a natural killer cell works by wandering around the body and every cell it comes into contact with, it basically asks, what's your password? And the password is something called a major, major, MHC, major compatibility complex. And if you've got the password, it's pass friend and on your way. And if you haven't got the password, it recognises you're a non-self cell and it kills you. Very simple system. Well, not simple at all, actually, but, but simple conceptually. <laughs> and so therefore, it doesn't need to know, learn anything. All it needs to know is this is your password and if you haven't got it, that cell is on the way out. That's a natural killer cell. But the other bit of the system, and this is important for all three of these are important for cancer. The second bit of the, the, the other two bits of the system I want to talk about are within what's called the adaptive immune system. And this is the bit of the immune system that learns. It finds a new thing. It doesn't like the look of it. It learns as a problem. It locks onto it and it destroys it. So it learns as you go through life. And actually, the way vaccines work is by getting the adaptive immune system to recognise this is a new thing. We haven't come across it. Don't like it. Let's kill it. And within it, there are two subsections that are important for uh, the, uh, the bits I'm going to talk about. B lymphocytes. And these produce antibodies. I'm sure you all have heard of antibodies, uh, but I'll remind uh, people if it's a little bit back in the, back in the uh, memory cells. And then T lymphocytes, which are a killer cell that locks onto particular antigens and kills cells cell to cell. Now, the immune system, of course, fights infections and attacks cancerous cells, but by definition, cancer, as we define it, is when these cells have escaped the immune system. Because if the immune system's done its job well, which it does most of the time, you never know. It's never a cancer because the cell emerges, it's wrong, and it's got rid of. So by definition, cancer is in cells which have evaded the immune system. So that's the first general point to make. But if we can either use or uh, train the immune system to fight cancer, it will do the job for us. And some of it's done with antibodies, which we'll come on to, uh, and some of it's done with cells. But this is the fastest growing field in uh, cancer at the moment. The oldest immunotherapy that we use is actually very old indeed. Most of you will have had a BCG vaccination against tuberculosis. It causes scarring, causes inflammation. That's the important point about this. And you'll have a scar on your arm. You may or may not be able to see it, but if you've got it, you've had the BCG. You need the, other one, the other scarring thing, smallpox, will only be in those who are a lot older. And the way the uh, cancer we use BCG in is bladder cancer. Bladder cancer is quite a common cancer in the UK. Uh, roughly just under half is caused by smoking. There's been a reduction. Very good news. That's because smoking rates have gone down. So bladder cancer is reducing for public health reasons. That's not the point of this talk. I'm just making that point. And if you have a superficial tumour, a bladder wart, most people know about it because they start to get blood in their urine. So if, first point, if you start to see blood in your urine, unless you're uh, menstruating at that particular point, go and see your doctor because it's maybe something trivial, but this is something you want to pick up early. And you then can find superficial wart-like viruses on the outside of the bladder, and they can just be uh, fried off, cauterized. But then BCG can be infused into the bladder, and that both infects some of the cells, causing local inflammation and causes non-specific inflammation. We don't really know how it works, if we're honest. But the fact is it does. If you put this BCG into the bladder, the bladder causes inflammation... And inflammation leads to the immune system homing in on this area and getting rid of cancer cells. And we know this because it reduces progression if you infuse BCG into bladders by about 27%. So this is an area where we've made the immune system active by giving it an infection it doesn't like and then, then goes into hyperdrive and kills abnormal cells everywhere and that leads to the uh, bladder infection. And currently, roughly 50% of people with bladder cancer will be alive 10 years later. So actually, if you're diagnosed with bladder cancer, you have um, a, high, a reasonably high chance of being alive over a decade later. 
So that's old-fashioned. Right, next, move on to the next stage, antibodies. Antibodies have got a lot of uses in cancer. So just a reminder about antibodies. They're exactly like a key. They have a constant end, like your Yale key, or whatever kind of key you've got. And then they have a variable end. And the variable end is very specific, like a key is, to lock on to particular receptors. And you can use that to... Uh, engineer these receptors so that they lock on to cancer cells by a variety of different means. And they can be manufactured very precisely to either things where the only cells that have got them are the cancer cell, or more commonly, where the cancer cells got a lot more of them than any of the other bodies, uh, sister, uh, cells in the body. Now, there are several ways we can use this. First is that the way that the natural immune system works is the antibodies find the cell they don't like, they coat it, and then the, system, the immune system comes in, notices that these are coats coated with antibodies, and kills it, kills the cell. That's how it works in infections, for example. So if you can just flag the cell, if you can find antibodies which flag the cell, then the immune system will pile in and kill the cells that you've flagged. So you're simply flagging to the, the immune system, this cell should be killed and the immune system will do the rest. And here are two uh, kinds of drugs. I'm not going to go through the, the long names of them. It doesn't really matter. The only reason I put them up here is in case someone you know or you have been treated with them. Uh, but here are two drugs which target particular receptors on cells, in this case, caused by uh, chronic lymphocytic leukaemia, kind of uh, blood cancer we'll talk about uh, later on. And once you coat the cells with antibodies, the immune system notices them, piles in and kills those cells. So the first thing is this is a flagging antibody. The next way we can use antibodies is to lock onto receptors in a way that interferes with the cell function. So this isn't about the immune system killing the cell. This is about the, the antibody blocking something in the normal passage of the, uh, of, of the way in which the cancer cell is surviving. So an example of that, which we'll talk about next, uh, next time round, uh, is the drug uh, which goes under the trade name Herceptin, very widely used in, uh, in breast cancer. And this binds to particular positive cells uh, and also to some stomach cancers and stops them behaving in the way they would have done if they had not had that. It interferes with their normal function, causes the cancer cells essentially to arrest their development so they stay frozen in time. They can't carry on developing. So that's one on those specific cells in breast and stomach cancer. And then here is a drug which is used in a number of other areas, actually. Uh, goes under the trade name Avastatin, various other trade names uh, increasingly. And this targets a protein which allows blood vessels to grow. And if you stop the blood vessels growing, then the cancer grows at basically beyond its blood supply and it can't grow anymore. Because cancer cells, like every other cell, need to have blood to keep them alive. So if you can stop the blood cells, the blood uh, vessels growing, you can stop uh, the solid tumours sometimes expanding. So these, so, can, so antibodies to flag for death, antibodies to interfere. The next way we can use antibodies is to attach a, uh, an, a, a very dangerous load that will then only target the cells that you're interested in. So these are antibodies which recognise and lock onto cancer cell receptors and then on the back of it you put a drug um, occasionally other things as well but a drug's most common thing a very cytotoxic drug so one that kills cells and they circulate in the blood but they're at such low levels they're not causing very many troubles to your uh, your blood and your cells and then it finds the cells and enough of it goes on to those cells that it kills the cancer cell but doesn't kill anything else. So you can therefore target very precisely these very dangerous drugs. So this bit here is the drug, and this bit here is the attachment group, and then the, the, the receptors at the top end. And very, very, very precisely, these antibodies target the cytotoxic drug, potentially radiotherapy as well, just onto the cells you care about, and no other. So that's a third way in which antibodies can be used. And then we move on to the, in a sense, the next stage of treatment. And I'm going to illustrate this uh, mainly because I don't deal with it later in, in the uh, year uh, with an important cancer, melanoma. Very dangerous skin cancer. And uh, first, very positive point, 
quite a common cancer, but if you look over time from the 1970s up to, this is up to 2011, this, this line has gone up, this is 100% survival at the top, uh, this is 30% survival here. Survival has massively increased over the last period. So if you've gone back to the 70s, most people with melanoma, uh, particularly uh, most men with melanoma, would die. Uh, now we've gone up to uh, now, the great majority of people with melanoma, probably 90% of people with melanoma, will survive. And the reason for that is very simple. You, if people know to look out for melanoma, these are typical melanomas on the right, if you see an abnormal uh, pigmented patch, you should show a doctor, and if they don't like the look of it, they'll cut it out, and some of them are melanomas, and that way you can just get rid of them. So the great majority, the re most of this improvement, is people spotting that they've got them, or spotting them on their partner's back or something, showing them to a doctor, doctor cuts it out, it is a melanoma, might do a slightly wider excision, end of story. Cut out, that's it, nothing else to it. So most of it, early diagnosis and very, very limited surgery. It's a day case, in and out. You'll be in and out in an afternoon for most of these. Until recently, however, once it had spread, the outlook was very bleak indeed. Melanoma spread was really a very, very bad cancer to have, and it is still a very bad cancer to have, let me be clear. But this is an area where there's been huge improvements as a result of this immunotherapy. So the early attempts to try and improve this were with a drug called interferon. And if you've gone back to the 1970s, the headlines in the newspapers were all about the wonder drug interferon, that this was going to sort out cancer. And interferon is a drug which is pumped out by your cells when there's inflammation, infection, or something else that they don't like. And it's actually the reason why you feel unwell, for example, when you have flu. It's the interferon that makes you feel rotten. But what it's doing is making the immune system a lot more frisky, just non-specifically. And it is certainly the case that if you use this protein, if you pump this protein into someone, it increases, to some degree the survival of people who've got melanoma, but not by very much. It does make a bit of a difference. Importantly, this, uh, this thing, which was originally thought of as a drug for cancer, has been found to have very important uh, other effects, particularly in multiple sclerosis. So to be clear, interferon is an important drug, but it's not a drug that we're now using primarily for cancer. But this is what has been the big change recently, is um, antibodies have been developed which take the breaks off the immune system in a very substantial way. So all the time, your immune system is in a constant balance. If it's too excitable, it'll kill your own cells. If it's very excitable, it'll kill you. If it's not excitable enough, it won't kill infections and it won't kill cancer cells. So it's got to get this really difficult balance. And part of the way that it does this is to have a break in the system that means that it won't attack cells uh, willy-nilly. And if you can uh, block the break, then it's rather like kind of films like Speed. Suddenly the thing's going at a phenomenal rate and it crashes into everything, including cancer cells. Now, the early attempts at this had big effects on cancers. This is a cancer before. This is a CT scan. Same person here with a melanoma after. The immune system breaks have been taken off, but the early ones had really very bad side effects because the problem was, having let the immune system to rip, uh, it then it started attacking uh, very many, uh, many of the cells of the humans. Increasingly now, we're able to take the breaks off the immune system, but in a controlled enough way that the great majority of people, whilst they won't feel great on it, will have a pretty good uh, tolerability with manageable side effects. And here is the situation. And this is a trial that came out um, uh, only, a, only a month ago uh, now. Um, this is the original trial showing the survival rate uh, with different drugs. And these are non-resectable melanomas. So these are virtually all people who would have died quite quickly without treatment. So all of them led to some reduction uh, in, uh, in death rates. But if you now look five years later, half of people given two of these drugs together were surviving five years later. That would have been unthinkable 10 years ago. That's a stunning change in terms of our treatment by allowing our own immune system to just go off the leash and attack things rather more effectively. 
And then the highest um, uh, level of sophistication, in a sense, I also I regret to say the highest level of cost and likely to remain that way, uh, is this thing called CAR-T therapy. And this is when you take the T cells from your own blood, take them out, you then insert a gene into them that allows them to express a receptor that recognises the cancer you're worried about, and then you multiply it in the, the lab, and then you put them back into the person. So it's their own cells trained to hunt down cancer, multiplied and infused back into the person. This is not a straightforward process, pretty obviously. And what then happens is, and they're now currently being used in lymphomas, but they will, in, in, I think in everyone's view, be used much more widely. They then go through the blood, the, the, they will live for a long time, hunting down the cancer cells they've been trained to kill and killing them. And they keep on doing it for a very long time until the cancer is gone. So cancers which previously would have been untreatable will now go into complete remission and may have gone into cure because these things will get everywhere and they will simply keep on hunting till there is none left. It's a very impressive form of treatment. Now, to be clear, this isn't relevant for most cancers. It's an early infancy area, but it is already showing very considerable promise. So now we've got antibodies to coat the cells, so the immune system notices them, antibodies to inf interfere, antibodies to uh, take a payload, which is very dangerous, uh, inflammation in general, particularly the BCG, taking the brakes off the system, also done by antibodies, and here we've got a situation where you're actually training the immune system cells, your own cells, to go in and fight a cancer. Quite astonishing if you think about the biology of this. This is a new area of science. It is moving terrifically fast. Obviously, the next question is, could you have a vaccine for cancer? We've now demonstrated the immune system can prevent and, if used wisely, can treat cancer. Could we actually have a vaccine for cancer? And there could be cancers treating vaccines, where you stimulate the immune system to actually just hunt down, rather like the antibodies are produced uh, for the early, uh, for the early um, kinds of uses I was showing about, or they could be preventive vaccines, vaccines that actually make it less likely that you go on to get a cancer. Now, so far, they've proved very difficult to work. So there are none currently available, but if you'd asked me, could you use the immune therapy to deal with cancer 10 years ago, I'd have said, this is science fiction. Uh, you know, it'll happen at some point, but it's going to move very slowly, and it's moved phenomenally fast. So I think if I was giving this talk in 10 years' time, there is a possibility, and in 30 to 40 years' time, I think a probability, there will be cancer vaccines which are used either in treatment or in prevention. I can't at this point predict which, but this is uh, a potentially very exciting area. So, to summarise, we've got cancers that have got a very strong infectious driver, and if we can identify them, and we have identified many of them, we can go on to prevent the cancer by preventing the infection. Cervical cancer, liver cancer uh, in particular... And in my view, the next stage we should be looking for probably is Epstein-Barr virus-associated cancers. And then we've got the, uh, the infection, particularly HIV, which destroy the immune system, and they tend to lead to increased cancers. So you need to deal with that by reconstituting the immune system. But increasingly, we're able to use the immune system, the antibodies, and the killer cells to actually treat cancer. And, and that's an extremely encouraging thing, because I think it is leading to a whole new area in our fight against cancer. So I will come back to specific uses for these as I go through the year talking about the various major cancers. Some of some, some this is relevant and some that is not. But I do want to emphasise this is an area moving incredibly fast and it will be substantially better. It's already good. It will be substantially better uh, within five years. Thank you very much. <laughs>